This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, May 18th, 2016. I'm Caleb Brown. When the Little Sisters of the Poor this week earned their small victory against mandates built into Obamacare, that was just one of potentially thousands of conflicts between religious liberty and government power. Jay Richards is executive editor of The Stream and professor at the Catholic University of America. We spoke this week. I think it's startling or maybe even bothersome or at least causes some dissonance to hear people say this phrase, which Mm -hmm. is religious liberty and economic liberty are uh, not just closely related, but in some cases they are the same thing. Yes. And uh, you're Catholic. I'm Catholic. Yeah. I'm a Quaker. Mm -hmm. And there are, you know, substantial implications for religious liberty uh, when the government decides that some measure of economic liberty has to be curtailed for the greater good, right. whatever that is. So how do you look at that? I think it's exactly right. I mean, even just at a common sense level, I mean, if the government is telling you uh, what what job you have to get, how much you have to pay your employees, how much you have to buy law, be paid, ends up essentially dictating a lot of your really basic decisions. And at some point, I think, just commonsensically, that's, that's going to begin to infringe on your religious freedom as well as your economic freedom. Uh, a couple of years ago, I started doing research on this and I have a, an article coming out, it's not yet published, and which I essentially compared the indices for economic freedom, which are very well developed, and then found a couple of organizations, the Pew Charitable Trust and a couple of others that had done at least rough and ready indexes for religious freedom. And if you overlay you know, the index uh, of economic freedom of the world or, the, or heritage's index with the religious freedom, you find something that's uh, not all that surprising, but is important, and it's this. Those countries that have the most economic freedom also have the most uh, religious freedom, and those that have the least economic freedom also have the least religious freedom. And so that tells you at a macro level of 180 countries that these two types of freedom correlate and are probably connected in various ways that, that we might not notice, so that I think a lot of people and a lot of Americans may be passionate about economic freedom, but not religious, or vice versa, when in fact, no, if, if we're really thinking long term, we got to we got to hold these things together. Freedom of association is an economic freedom. Mm-hmm. It is a religious. It is a religious freedom, right. and that freedom of association, just that that core concept, right. really has taken a beating in the last. Uh, few years. It has. I mean, and of course, that freedom of association is the thing that is prior to both religious and economic freedom, either the forming of religious communities or the forming of business communities in terms of, you know, family businesses or large corporations. But it's hard for people to get fired up about freedom of association. You're not going to get 100,000 people outright for a march for freedom of association. That's the abstract concept. But I think, I mean, the most obvious recent event would be what's happened as a result of the so-called Affordable Care Act. Of course, we've in the U.S. here for the last couple of years uh, have seen this battle between the administration and the Little Sisters of the Poor, which is a Catholic religious organization of uh, women religious who dedicate their lives to helping the elderly poor. But because they don't restrict who they help. That is, they will help non-Catholics. The administration decided, no, we're not going to give you a religious exemption, the same one we gave to the Exxon Corporation. I mean, literally, uh, that's how bad it is. And so you know, okay, if the, the president and is fighting against the Little Sisters of the Poor. It's almost certainly something weird has happened here. And you know, and what happened is in the Affordable Care Act, uh, everyone that analyzes the economics of the health care debate knows 
The problem is largely the result of the so-called third-payer problem. That is, you've got way too many regulations and entities between the customer, that is, the patient and the doctor. You want to solve that, you need to get more market reforms to get the third party payer out of the out of the middle. Well what the Affordable Care Act did is actually crammed made the crowd between the patient and the doctor much, much uh, larger. So three hundred thousand words in the bill and its reconciliation. So far, uh, as of two thousand sixteen, there have been eleven million words of regulations written as a result of the Affordable Care Act. So the idea that eleven million words of regulation dealing with this intimate relationship between a doctor and her patient is not going to have religious implications is really absurd. And that's why it's quite frustrating to think that there were a lot of Christian and religious organizations, including the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops, who, at least behind the scenes, supported the Affordable Care Act, I think not realizing the implications for religious freedom that were, were coming down the pike. There, there's good news, at least temporarily. I, I just this morning, I actually heard Sister Constance Veit, who is the spokesperson for the Little Sisters of the Poor. And we just, we just heard, actually, yesterday that the Supreme Court had vacated the case, essentially the lower court cases that uh, that the the little sisters were contesting um, went to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court essentially said, "Okay, the government has admitted that they there were other things they could have done to have allowed the little sisters an exemption." And so, basically, the Supreme Court has vacated the prior court judgments and sent it back. So, I think this is a temporary victory. I think the court is signaling that no, in fact, the government really commonsensically should figure out how to allow the little sisters not to be compelled to provide abortifacients in their health care, which is bizarre. These are all mostly elderly and all celibate sisters. And so it's not as if they would ever even need uh, this provision. And yet the, uh, the administration dug in its heels. It's almost a point of principle to force the little sisters of the poor uh, to, to provide these things uh, and to do things that directly violate their conscience. I think that's crucial. We're not just talking about some vague but morally neutral inconvenience. We're, we're, the government is saying, no, we have a compelling interest in forcing religious sisters to violate their conscience. And that's quite staggering. And it's also interesting that you note that uh, one of the uh, fights here is over whether or not uh, the Little Sisters of the Poor, as many other religious organizations do, are providing help to people who are not a part of their actual <laughs> group. That's right. Which many uh, faith traditions demand That's that right. you do. That's what's so strange that essentially if the sisters had just not allowed, say, an elderly Methodist to come in, if they had a rule, oh, I'm sorry, you're, you're Quaker? Oh, no, that we can't help you. If they'd had that rule, they could have gotten an exemption. But because they don't have that rule, because they're open to, to anyone, any elderly poor that needs their help, that, that's cost them. That's cost them hundreds of thousands of dollars in years of grief in the American legal system. But the problem isn't that they're... Uh, making that choice mm -hmm. to provide or not provide, in, in my estimation, the problem is that the feds have said, we're going to determine what defines your faith. That's exactly right. That's what's so bizarre, that uh, the implication is that uh, the federal bureaucracy is the, the entity most competent, competent to determine what a religious faith is, which is just a very strange claim. Of course, Congress passed the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. Mm -hmm. It was signed into law by Bill Clinton. That law has been used to protect a very wide variety right. of activities. Uh, uh, most out there mm -hmm. uh, for most people would be the consumption of hallucinogens. <laughs> right. Uh, that was the that was the issue at the and time. That, and that was and it was an important case. It was because uh, 
you know, it's that is a matter of religious yeah, freedom. Right. Yeah. What's funny is, of course, that the, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act in the in the 90s, it was bipartisan support. It was uncontroversial. Now it's become quite controversial. And it usually has something to do with marriage or sex or something like that. And it's unfortunate because what's happened is that people's questions about whether they support same-sex marriage or not, it's gotten swept up in that debate. Whereas I think whatever you think about that, we ought to be able to agree, and 20 years ago, I think most Americans could agree, that people shouldn't be compelled to do things that directly violate their conscience if there's some better way to, to go around it. So the issue uh, in the case of the, you know, the baker, uh, bakers in, in Washington state uh, who, who didn't want to be involved in uh, same-sex marriage ceremony in terms of providing it, it wasn't a question of them refusing people, lesbians or, or gay men that came into their store. It was simply that they said, no, we that's not our problem. Our problem is not that we're going to refuse service, per se. We just don't want to be involved directly in this event that violates our conscience. And I don't know, that's not that complicated of a distinction. I mean, everybody recognizes the distinction when it comes to Bruce Springsteen, right? No one thinks, oh, Bruce Springsteen should now be forced to go to North Carolina. No one thinks that, but nevertheless, the florists and the bakers must be brought to heel on this thing. And um, I, I just think we're getting to the point in which the definition of religious freedom ends up being something like, well, you're free to believe something privately inside your head as long as it has absolutely no public implication for your actions. And at that point, I, that, yeah, the People's Republic of China has that kind of religious freedom. I don't think that's what the founders had in mind. If you are compelled, uh, it, whether you are uh, evangelical or, mm -hmm. or not evangelical, to behave in a way that is consistent with the instructions <laughs> that you receive from your the, the faith tradition that right. you have chosen, it is impossible for you not to, uh, I would think, over time, not bump up against uh, government power. Mm -hmm. Uh, in your living expression of your faith. Absolutely. And unless the, the government simply sticks to the things that are its core competence. Unfortunately, we long, long ago left that trail and we're off on an obscure tributary in which the government is involved in all sorts of things that I would argue just simply not only not its core competence, but are inevitably going to violate both economic and religious freedom. Jay Richards is executive editor at The Stream and author of Money, Greed, and God. This month marks 10 years of the Cato Daily Podcast. Subscribe and share at cato.org slash podcast and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.